Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 10th. I hope that you and yours are doing well. We're going to continue in our series on the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. Today we're in chapter 2, picking up with verses 13 through 16. Again, First Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 16. I'm reading from the ESV version. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. In the midst of all the flux and change that is our world, that is our culture, there's one thing that remains absolutely unchangeable, and that is the word of the living God. The message of the Bible, the, the message of the scripture never alters. It is always up to date, and it always speaks to the issues of our time. The Bible is like a solid rock in the midst of a desert of shifting sand. It is the most precious object on the earth today. Abraham Lincoln called it God's best gift to man. Daniel Webster said, If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we or our posterity neglect it and its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Prophetic words. In our studies in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we begin today with this marvelous verse about the Word of God. I'm reading verse 13, and this is in the RSV translation. And, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. What an amazing statement of truth about the word, capitalized the word. In parallel with other passages in the Bible, it declares that the word of God is this most remarkable instrument. But no other verse in the Bible states so clearly and obviously that the word of God comes to us through ordinary human beings just like you and I. You see, part of the glory of Advent is that God's word became flesh, became a person, and, and to communicate with us in terms that we can understand. And throughout history, you see, God has always done that. He has communicated through human beings who look, who talk, and behave just like us. So the Bible speaks to our specific needs. In the Gospels, there were only three occasions when God spoke directly to people. The experience astounded Everybody who heard, paralyzing them with fear. First of all, God spoke when Jesus was baptized. And then when, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, God spoke to them directly. 
And again, during that fatal last week in Jerusalem, when Jesus announced that he was about to die, God the Father spoke from the heavens. But he, he does not do that very often. Most of the time, he speaks through human beings, and he does so in various ways. Jeremiah says that the word of God came to him like, like a burning in his bones. That's chapter 20, verse 9. It was something he had to utter. He could not keep quiet about it. Elijah declared that the word of God came to him like a still small voice. That's 1 Kings 19.12. It maybe was was not a voice at all, but a quiet realization that God was speaking to him. Daniel said that God spoke to him in in visions and dreams in the night. That's Daniel 2, also in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 10 and others. He went on to interpret those strange and those marvelous dreams and visions. Moses said that God communicated with him. He spoke to him face to face like a man speaks with his friends. That's Exodus 33, 11. That does not mean that Moses saw God because the Bible also says that no one has ever seen God. What Moses was saying was that the communication was so clear it was as though God was speaking directly to him. As a result... Moses wrote the first five books in our Bible. Peter wrote that holy men of old speak as they were carried along by the Spirit. This is the most common way in which the Word of God has come to us. Certainly, that's the way the Thessalonian Christians experienced it. You see, Paul stood up and he began to speak to them. And as he spoke, they were conscious that they were hearing, that what they were hearing, was far more than just simply the words of a mere person. They were hearing the word of God, and they received it, says Paul, as such. And the greatest of all revelations, of course, was that that incredible moment when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and the great star hung over the village, dropping its glory on, on the earth below. And the shepherds heard the voice of angels, troubled and puzzled, They came to a dark cave in the hillside, and and there they found a mother and her child. And John records that, that it was then that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, John 1, 14. The book of Hebrews declares that it is the final and ultimate revelation of God to man. The book opens with that declaration. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 2. Nothing can supersede that ultimate revelation. But this raises a problem, of course, because if the word of God comes through ordinary people, it can easily be imitated. See, false prophets can claim that they're fraudulent expressions are also the word of God. History records a long parade of false prophets, all of of whom have claimed to, to speak a message from God. So how can we tell when God has really spoken and when we are hearing from a false prophet claiming to speak for God? Well, the scripture does not leave us without help in regards to this. First of all, we have to remember that God's actions in the world always agree with his words. The scripture claims that God is its author and that he is also the maker of the physical world and all the forces that are at work in the world. He is the controller. He is the king. He is the Lord over all of history and the affairs of mankind. 
And if both are true, then one can expect that true experience will confirm what the word says. History testifies to the fact that God never acts contrary to his word. So if someone promises us something that the word of God does not promise, we can know immediately that we have heard a false prophet speaking. Furthermore, when a prophet, man or woman, predicts that a certain event will occur in the future and it does not happen, the Bible declares that that person is a false prophet. The Bible makes the amazing claim that when it makes a prediction, it must be 100% accurate or we can disregard it. It is not, then, the word of God. Measured by that standard, some of the predictions that we hear today are really rather ridiculous. Those false predictions mark the prophets who made them as not to be trusted. One of the clear marks of the Word of God is that it is absolutely accurate. It accords with reality. Secondly, another way to test reality is found in the phrase at the end of verse 13. The Word of God, which is at work in you believers... You see, the real word of God always changes people. It changes us. It makes them different. So to merely memorize or mentally accept it does not change anyone. But if people begin to act on it, to obey it, they will be permanently changed. The word will make them into different people. The Bible itself makes that claim in Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, by his word, analyzes our motives and changes them, helping us to see what it is that we've been thinking that is wrong and corrects it. When we then begin to be different, that is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God and profitable. In other words, it is useful for teaching, for instructing us about things that we can never know otherwise, for reproof. In other words, telling us what has gone, gone wrong in our life, for correction, instructing us on the changes that we need to make, and for training in righteousness. Those are the practical guidelines to the truth how to react to situations, how to handle our anger, our sex drive, or whatever it may be. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Most of us perhaps are familiar with the story of the mutiny on the bounty. Maybe, maybe it was in a required reading when you were in school. In the 19th century, mutineers took over the ship, set their captain adrift in a lifeboat, and ended up finally on the island of Picturing in the South Pacific. But we do not often hear much about what happened to them after they landed. They were, they were rather rough, tough sailors for the most part. Together with the wives they had taken with them from the island of Tahiti, they spent their days on Picturing, drinking, gambling, carousing, fighting one another. Soon the fighting actually led to, to battle. And they killed each other off until the colony was reduced to just a handful of people. And among them was a man named Alexander Smith. Rummaging through his trunk one day, he found a Bible that his mother had put there, and he began to read it. 
and soon it changed his life. And then he read to the surviving mutineers, and it changed their lives. When, when that island was rediscovered some years later, it had become a model community. There was no jail because they had no crime. They loved God. They loved each other. The, the book, the word, had totally changed their lives and their society. So that second thing is that there is an actual change in us. The word has the power to change. Thirdly, Paul says that this wonderful life-changing word has another remarkable power, and that is it often arouses violent opposition. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all men by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. That's verses 14 through 16. Every generation, every century has seen this happen. Throughout history, Christians have been persecuted, martyred. They've been bound in animal skins, left to shrink in the hot sun, thrown into lion's dens, burnt alive, exiled, etc. Why the violent opposition to this remarkable word with its power to bless and to transform? Well, there are three reasons why this violent opposition happens. First, it is clear from the scriptures that the gospel ignores all human achievement. God is totally unimpressed with degrees, awards, position, tenure, wealth, or any other trappings of power. Everybody, everybody must come to him the same simple way, by admitting that we cannot help ourselves and by accepting salvation as a gift from the hand of God through Jesus Christ. As that old hymn puts it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Religious achievements, a good belief system, or good moral behavior do not impress God. There is only one way to approach him, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself declared, no one can come to the Father but by me. That's John 14, 6. We may believe in God, but we will never know him as Father unless we come by Jesus. Other religions find this claim to be offensive. The laws of electricity must be carefully observed before you dare tinker with electric current, and it does not show respect of persons. In other words, we cannot make up our own laws. The telephone company insists that we get the correct numbers in sequence when we use the phone, when we use our mobile. We don't have the liberty of arranging them to our own liking. We must get them just right. And so God insists that there's only one way to be reconciled with him, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that makes a lot of people very angry. But whether Buddhists or Muslims, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, religious performance does not impress God, and neither will it change us. The only thing that can change us is the word of God received by faith. The second reason the gospel arises violent opposition is that it exposes human pride. There is a terrible evil in all of us, which we all try to hide. I find it in myself. I am stubborn at times, and I excuse myself on the grounds that people need to, to be stubborn occasionally. 
But that is nothing but pride. It's an independent spirit that says, I don't need any help. I can make it on my own. And we are all guilty of this in varying degrees. But we keep it under control for fear of reprisal, recrimination, or out of a desire not to be known as being prideful or stubborn. But if the restraints are removed, that pride will suddenly break out in the most terrible form of viciousness and vindictiveness. And the gospel exposes that in us and declares to us that it is the way God sees us. No one can claim to be any different before him, for God reads the hearts. People do not like that. They resist and react violently to it at times. Proverbs says there are seven things that God hates. And number one on the list, number one on the list of the seven things that Scripture names that God detests is a proud look, a self-sufficient spirit, an independent trust in one's own powers. Perhaps the old hymn best expresses how we have to approach God. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living waters, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My soul was blessed, my heart revived, and now... I live in him. The key in that phrase, in that hymn, is stoop down. We cannot receive living water unless we are willing to stoop down and to admit we do not have it. There's no other hope. There is no other way. We must admit that we cannot save ourselves. But that is what so many refuse to do. And a third reason why the gospel arouses opposition is because it forgives blatant sinners. Those like me who richly deserve death and hell in the eyes of the world. The Pharisees were offended because Jesus received adulterers, prostitutes, swindlers, and outcasts, while they themselves, respectable moral people, were excluded. That is why they finally killed Jesus. Many oppose the gospel because it appeals to the disreputable. But that is its glory. It can change anyone who will receive it in humility and in contrition. And the last thing that Paul says here is that God sometimes takes very severe measures, very severe measures to awaken people to their situation. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, here he is referring to the Jews in Judea who are persecuting the believers. But God's wrath has come on them at last. Second part of verse 16. Paul makes reference to the dark cloud of national disaster that was hanging over Israel at this time. As he wrote this letter, the Roman armies were already hassled by Jewish rebellion. Before long, they would lay siege to Jerusalem and finally break down its walls, destroy the temple, take the Jews captives, and lead them out into dispersion among the nations of the earth. Paul knew that that was coming. God has great patience. God, in his great patience, allowed them to fill up the measure of their sins. He waited to that last moment. God is not angry. He's not an angry, vindictive being who hurls thunderbolts of judgment on men at some slight provocation. No, he gives us a chance to wake up to see what is happening to us and waits for us to change. 
But if we do not, there comes a time when he forces us to live with the consequences of our actions. Disasters hit and shake us and wake us. And that's what Paul is talking about. Praise be to God that he is for us and not against us. And that his word, his word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He is a God of grace and of mercy. Amen. And God bless.